from Lebanon to Latrobe, Milroy to Grantham, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, high-profile races for U.S. Senator and Governor of Pennsylvania are just a month away, and the debate over debates has taken center stage. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation for a Capital Watch roundtable discussion. And government regulators have turned Pennsylvania into a nanny state. This is having an impact on virtually every facet of daily life. I'll have a town hall commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capital Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. The Pennsylvania Independent Fiscal Office has released August's inflation number, and for the fifth straight month, the Commonwealth's inflation rate was above 8%. In fact, it stood at 8.1% as higher prices continued to batter consumers. In an effort to tame inflation, the Federal Reserve Board's Open Market Policy Committee last week again hiked its benchmark interest rate by 75 basis points. The third month in a row, the Fed has increased interest rates as inflation continues to rage. Inflation must be higher at Penn State University, which is asking lawmakers for a 47.5% increase in general funding support. That would result in a $115 million increase in taxpayer funding to the university. The request came as news broke that the university's board of trustees spent $318,000 on food and lodging for recent meetings. This while the university is under a hiring freeze after having run a $127 million deficit last year. Still workers in Union County are in a fight with their own union over a decertification vote. The workers twice rejected a proposed contract, which union officials then ratified anyhow, prompting the decertification movement. However, a clause in the contract opposed by workers but signed by union leadership prohibits a decertification vote for three years. Workers are now taking their case to the National Labor Relations Board, where it will be a key test of worker rights, versus the power of union leaders. Governor Tom Wolf is now asking Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court to rule unconstitutional a package of five proposed constitutional amendments legislative Republicans are seeking to have placed before voters in a referendum. The five amendments range from mandatory voter ID to declaring there is no constitutional right to an abortion in Pennsylvania. Wolf contends the bill violated the Constitution because the proposed amendments were voted on in a single bill rather than in five separate bills. The governor has sought to have the state Supreme Court hear his case, but the justices rejected that motion, saying it had to first be heard by the Commonwealth Court. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Since the famous Nixon-Kennedy debates of 1960, candidate debates have been a staple of American elections, But as this year's general election rapidly approaches, there is more debate over debates than there are, well, actual debates. Here with a Capital Watch discussion are David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, 
Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. David? And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, Rebecca Euler, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca, how are you? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you? Doing real well. Awesome to have you with us. And via the telephone, our other partner, Steve Bloom, Vice President of Pennsylvania's free market think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation. Steve, how are you? I am well, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Outstanding. Well, it's great to be together. And this week, events sort of seem to require a response, that we're in the middle of the campaign season, sort of debate over debates. And it's gotten, like, just especially frustrating and infuriating. And I just want to kind of do a step back and do a reset and talk about why In our representative form of government, we're supposed to be deliberative about who we choose to be our governmental leaders, and that part of that is learning where people stand to assess the level of ability of these various candidates and office holders so that voters can make an informed choice. And if we have candidates who are avoiding debates or refusing to participate in the larger public conversation, we all lose. And so, Steve, why don't you just reflect a little bit about, you know, you're a former lawmaker. You've been a candidate for office multiple times. What has it meant to to you and the, the voters who you were approaching to have candidates and office holders appearing in public forums? Well, David, first, I want to look at it just from a, a raw strategic perspective. Now, I ran I ran four successful campaigns for state house for myself and and uh with the thanks to the voters, was elected four times. And I discovered something very early on in that process, which is you can't operate a successful political campaign in secret. I started in my first race. There was It was a seven-way primary, and there were a, a couple of candidates who were, were trying to not let anyone know what they were up to, as if secrecy was going to give them some kind of strategic advantage. And so they were they had like a closed... Facebook group that you couldn't join without permission of a monitor. And they were, they were like literally doing things secretly so no one knew what they were doing. Well, if the voters don't know what you're doing, you are doomed. You are going to lose. And those folks who tried to run those, those stealthy campaigns were blown away. They lost by, by large numbers. And I learned, obviously, that, that, that fact that when you're campaigning, it's a public experience. You are, you are introducing yourself to the citizens of whatever district or state or whatever it is you are running for. You're making yourself known to people in a way that they can find out what you're about and do they like you or do they dislike you. One of the interesting things that, that I've found out from knocking on tens of thousands of doors over the years is that, believe it or not, you, know, you and I and, and Rebecca, we are um, ideologically committed. We know where we stand on issues and we evaluate a potential candidate, one of the first things we look at is what issues does this candidate support or oppose? We want to know the issues. But not all voters are like that. And in fact, there is a swath of voters, and these are what you might describe as the the swing voters. But these voters are middle of the road when it comes to policy, or policy is not that important to them. They vote on personality. They vote on, do I like this person? Do I feel like I trust this person? And you cannot establish that kind of trust if you have not been willing to talk to them. So 
it is it's sort of anathema to the whole notion of a, a representative democracy to to have uh, the, a candidate who's unwilling to connect with the people that he or she is seeking uh, the support from in order to serve them in some public office. It's just part of what you do strategically. The other piece, though, is is um, when you think about like the impact on our nation as a whole or our state as a whole. If we don't know who our candidates are, if they are, are they're not willing to engage with members of of the public uh, or or members perhaps of the media who do not share all their views, we don't understand how well that person will be able to advocate for the issues they say they're about. Sure, we want to see our candidates tested. We want to see them challenged with tough questions. And Steve, that's that's exactly the the view that that I would expect. Like just thinking these things through logically, even without any experience, that in order to to earn people's support, to win them over, that you have to engage with them. I mean, unfortunately, you've got a lot of campaigns that are attempting to, to connect sort of virtually through brief TV ads and, you know, little internet blurbs. There are really grave matters of state that are at stake in this election. But before we talk about the specific campaigns and the way that these you know, debate questions are being thrown around, Rebecca, I just wanted to get your thoughts about, again, that whole issue of having campaigns where the candidates engage in debate. Sure. I, I agree with Steve on this. And I like how he said how uh, trust is essential to democracy and how building trust is, uh, is really a big part of representative democracy. And sort of to build on that, um, in today's divided political environment, where um, we, we really are at each other's throats at times, and I think we're, we're reduced in the political discourse sometimes to, like you said, sound bites and memes and virtual sort of interactions that aren't aren't conducive to building that trust. So that environment, I think, makes it really difficult to understand where candidates actually are on real substantive policy issues. And if we haven't learned anything over the past couple of years, is that the policy choices that politicians make that, you know, policymakers make have real consequences in our everyday lives. It's really worrisome that we can't get to the part of the political debate where we hear those things. And it, and I do find it troublesome because it's like Steve said, a lot of folks, um, they they don't get to the point where they're tuned into the issues because they're sort of stuck in this um, sort of back and forth um ugly virtual world that that we all seem to be stuck in sometimes. So we need to get beyond that. Yeah, all the superficial things. When you're listening to Capital Watch, I'm your host, David Taylor from PMA with Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Steve Bloom from the Commonwealth Foundation. And so I guess there's no alternative here. We've got to sort of weigh in on these different races. And so Starting with the with the race for governor, that the Republican state senator Doug Mastriano refuses to talk with the press. That, in contrast, that Democrat Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who's his party's nominee for governor, is crisscrossing the state, um, holding public appearances, and he and, and his team are talking with all of the media outlets. That that Senator Mastriano seems to be running one of those secret campaigns where he doesn't want to talk to anybody other than. And his own core supporters and especially and Steve, just again, to get your thoughts on this with with engaging with the adversarial press where, no, things are not just going to be, you know, served up for you like the, you know, like the pitcher at the home run derby, that 
it's it's critical in assessing the ability of a candidate or office holder to see how they do under fire. Well, if you look at some of the historical figures we think of who who are well-known, at least for their leadership, regardless of ideology, but certainly for their leadership, you look at, like, President Lincoln, for example. You think of him literally out on the stump yep. debating his primary opponents and, and detractors in a public setting where he could show his mettle. He could, he could learn how to, to drive the points that he needed to drive home to accomplish what he hoped to accomplish in, in hostile, challenging settings. He became stronger at that, and then obviously not what he ever anticipated when he first ran for president, ended up you know, having to, need to, to lead the nation through, through its most divisive era. There was a guy who was a great leader and totally willing to put himself out there on the stump, to, to hear questions from individuals, to challenge his principal opponents to, to a, a discussion using the, the power of, of the language, which is how we decide things in the United States of America. We don't want to be a, a might makes right. We want to be a place where the rule of law prevails. And in order to do that, we have to understand how our candidates that we're considering express themselves in that arena. I can remember watching President Kennedy uh, working at a, in a, a news conference with the White House press corps, an old clip I saw several years ago. President Kennedy clearly was relishing the opportunity to take questions from not only his, his proponents, but his detractors. He enjoyed the exchange. You could see the, the enjoyment on his face. And, and they, they talked tough issues, but they did it in a way that was civil, that was even cheerful, with a mutual respect, although the issues were critical. There were life-and-death issues for the United States, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis. These are the typical examples of the prototypical American politician leader who is willing to enter the arena. And this is, you know, this is what we what we need. And, um, you know, so so coming up in in just a few days, we're going to have the annual um, dinner of the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. And those folks, of course, are are friend of friends of ours. But that the the chamber dinner uh, over the years has been kind of the neutral ground where all of the candidates um, appear and uh, that the chamber holds debates and that this is the this is the place where you have to go. In fact, in, in 2018, it was the only debate that was held in um, in Governor Wolf's uh, reelection campaign. And so, um, you know, again, this cycle, it was looking as though that would be the one a time that we would see uh, uh, Senator Mastriano and Attorney General Shapiro on the same stage at the same time, um, you know, interacting with one another. Um, but that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, we have they're going to have uh, fireside chats with uh, with new chamber president and CEO Luke Bernstein, um, one after the other. So it'll be it'll be a separate um, sort of interaction in front of that crowd. But, uh, you know, again, it's it's it seems a real shame that we won't have we the voters of Pennsylvania won't have, um, you know, the chance to size up, you know, these two contenders one against the other. And what an odd scenario to have we're basically a month away from the general election, in which, in which Pennsylvania is going to be choosing a new governor and a new United States senator. The, the two offices probably with the most gravity uh, of any offices in this, in this Commonwealth. And these, the, the, the candidates on stage at this, this forum that's publicly televised, and it's a way for Pennsylvanians to find out what is happening with, with this, this political race heading into the crucial 
last month, and instead of having candidates facing off, you have one the one party's candidate for the U.S. Senate race by himself. Yes. And one candidate for the gubernatorial race by himself of the other party, mm-hmm. but no debate, no right. interaction because they're not running against each other. Yeah. And maybe that you know maybe the chamber could try something novel and say, well. You know, we'll just we'll just have the two of you debate, but that's yeah. obviously unfair. <laughs> slate of issues completely different, right? Federal issues versus state issues and all that, but facetiously. But yet, it would be it, it's it's just and it's a sense of we are we are missing out on an opportunity to find yeah. out what the folks were considering and, to vote for stand for, and, and we're and we're losing something. And of course, you, you know, you you allude to the fact that um, that uh, Dr. Oz, the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate, is going to appear, and that um, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, the Democrat candidate for U.S. Senate, is is uh, he didn't even respond to the to the chamber's invitation, which is which is regrettable. But the the um, and I just. As a as a personal point, I want to I just want to emphasize this, you know, that Attorney General Shapiro, um, as the Democrat, it would be reasonable reasonable for him to look on the the chamber audience as being not an especially friendly group, and I just want to commend him for his willingness to appear at that forum and that having both parties participate in the chamber dinner is is a is a healthy thing. It's an affirmative thing that there are places where we can come together, hash things out, treat one another with respect, but, you know, but bring to light the critical issues that face the Commonwealth. So, you know, again, good on good on him for doing that. Yeah, that's right, Dave. I I think the fact that you mentioned that that is a great opportunity that I think there are very few of those opportunities left anymore where there really is a good neutral location uh, to have these types of events and the chamber dinner certainly is that so there are very few of them left and one thing I wanted to mention is um, Steve mentioned we're a month away from the election well I think so many folks are focused on election day Um, we're forgetting the fact um, and this, I think, emphasizes what a big missed opportunity this chamber dinner is because because of mail-in voting, elections happen a lot sooner now. Um, not everyone is waiting till election day to vote. So people are making those decisions right now. It is critical for these discussions and these conversations to happen now. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the, the, the question of debates in the U.S. Senate race uh, between Dr. Oz and Lieutenant Governor Fetterman is important because, you know, we discovered only after votes were cast in the primary that the, that the lieutenant governor had suffered a stroke and had to have um, a pacemaker defibrillator uh, inserted. He actually had that surgery on Election Day. And so um, we've only seen him sort of haltingly, uh, very briefly um, at staged events. And that, you know, I think there are very serious questions about uh, the lieutenant governor's health and his ability to serve um, if he would be elected to that that high station in office. And so he's managed to postpone a debate down to just a few days before uh, votes are cast in person on Election Day. And again, that also strikes me as being as being like an evasion of sorts. It's it's too late for a lot of voters at that point. They've already voted, and, and it's not as if there, there's some you know right wing cabal that wants to see Lieutenant Governor Fetterman uh, step out on a debate stage and see how he handles himself because of as you mentioned there are, there there are legitimate serious health issues that this gentleman has experienced. He and and you know we we all pray for the, the best for him. A- absolutely, he heals quickly and everything. But 
the point being, he's he's running for what's known as the, the U.S. Senate. It's known as the world's greatest deliberative body. It's what what the the Senate chamber is known for is debate and using words to 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 fight the battles of politics in an effective manner. And so, for it, it's it's not just again his opposition. It's uh, left leaning newspapers all over the state have have asked General or Lieutenant Governor Fetterman to to participate in debates so the public gets that fair opportunity to see if he's okay. Yeah. Like, and even, we want him to be okay. Yes. And it's nothing personal, it's nothing political, but we do want our, our U.S. senatorial candidate and potential new U.S. senator for the next six years. We need to know that this person is, is able to measure up to that kind of work. Yeah, and, and I think that even just the ability to be there on stage for whether it's 60 minutes or 90 minutes um, as a test of stamina is also important. And again, um, you know, we wish the lieutenant governor well. We wish him a complete recovery. None of this is personal. The, the, the powers of that office that he's seeking belong not to the office holder, but to the people. And the office holder is a temporary trustee of the powers of that office. And so the people of the Commonwealth deserve to know whether or not the person seeking that office has the ability to, to carry out those duties responsibly. So anyway, it's this this is the debate over the debates, um, and um, unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for this week's program. There's so much more to say, but we'll have to leave it there. But for the time being, Rebecca, where can people go to learn more about you and, and, and what you do? Yes, they can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at PMTA.org. Excellent. And Steve, where can people go to learn more about you and your group? On the internet, commonwealthfoundation.org. Wonderful. And as ever, you can find me online at pamanufacturers.org and on Sunday mornings at 8.30 on the Pennsylvania Cable Network with PMA Perspective. So for Steve and Rebecca and me, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry. Thank you, David. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has many nicknames, most notably the Keystone State. And our tourism slogan for a while was State of Independence. We are known as the Cradle of Liberty, which is perhaps most appropriate in that Penn's Woods has become a nanny state. Government bureaucrats and some lawmakers think they need to control every aspect of our lives, from regulations on businesses to what trees and shrubs we can plant in our backyards. The urge to demonstrate intellectual and moral superiority via government action is a powerful force. Some of these actions border on frivolity, while others have serious consequences. For example, Japanese barberry plants are a favorite of homeowners and landscapers. The crimson red leaves add color and interest. The plants are drought-resistant and easy to maintain. They are also now illegal. The folks at Pennsylvania's Department of Agriculture have decreed that they crowd out other plants, and according to a news release, are, quote, thought to harbor black-legged ticks, end quote. Note the use of the word thought, since apparently the justification lacks scientific fact. So the good regulators at the Ag Department have ordered the end of barberry sales, and next year will, quote, issue stop sales and destruction orders, end quote. They didn't stop there, also ordering the Pyrus coloriana tree to be banished from the kingdom. Most folks know the tree as a Bradford pear. I have several in my backyard, a fast-growing tree that features vivid white blooms in the spring. Regulators have deemed the tree invasive, although mine have behaved themselves and stayed within their borders. 
and apparently some folks are offended by the smell of the blossom, so off with their head. Speaking of being offended, one person, one person who lives in another state, complained about reenactments at the historic Bushy Run Battlefield in Westmoreland County. In swooped the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, demanding the reenactment be canceled. The Bushy Run Heritage Society, which operates the park, refused, since many of the reenactors were already on location. But in an exercise of toxic regulatory control, the commission has ordered the park to consult with, quote, appropriate Native American groups before hosting future reenactments. Not to be outdone by the bureaucrats, some lawmakers are also getting into the act. A bill has been introduced into the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, making it illegal to release balloons. So if you're planning a wedding or other special event and wish to feature a balloon release, you better do so quickly before you get arrested. Now, there may be a very good reason not to release balloons. Waterfowl and other critters can ingest the balloons when they fall back to earth and suffer serious consequences. Fair enough. But this is a case where educating the public, as with anti-littering campaigns, is a more prudent approach than wasting valuable legislative time and effort. In each of these cases, regulations have a superfluous rather than serious impact. Micro-regulation becomes far more concerning when it impacts the health and well-being of our Commonwealth citizens and inhibits economic growth. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a wide range of regulations related to the delivery of health care were temporarily suspended. For example, the scope of service provided by nurse practitioners was widened, telemedicine regulations were relaxed, and more credentials from other states were accepted. President Joe Biden has declared the COVID-19 pandemic has ended. So the question becomes, if relaxing or removing those regulations improved health care during a pandemic, are they really necessary? In fact, are they actually harmful? The time has come to make permanent those temporary changes. On the economic front, the House Policy Committee conducted a series of hearings over the summer about the cause of historic high inflation. Policy Committee Chairman Marty Cosner told the Center Square, quote, We heard a lot about the role regulations are playing in driving up costs for job creators and consumers alike, and we recently reviewed a report with the Mercatus Center outlining how regulations increase the state's poverty rate, end quote. The House GOP has made regulatory reform and elimination a major goal, In an effort, says House Majority Leader Kerry Benninghoff, to, quote, successfully limit the size and scope of government, end quote. To that end, various committees have called upon the Independent Regulatory Review Commission, asking for an expedited review of all regulations on the book for three or more years to determine if they remain in the public interest. A certain level of regulation is necessary to ensure the smooth functioning of society and to protect the public. But when regulations become frivolous and worse, harmful, the time has come to rein in the regulators. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, 
including WCYJ-FM in Waynesburg, WMBSAM and FM in Uniontown, along with WJASAM in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.